if going to the zero bound was bad, then for God's sake, what what are the implications of negative interest rates? But before this bankruptcy cycle started, we had approximately 20% of all U.S. firms that were zombies. Now you're talking about things that are completely out of the control and or purview of my former employer, the Fed. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I am joined today by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener, and our special guest, Ms. Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I even dressed appropriately. Hello. Hello. And you've got Keith and I all, all dressed up as well. Yeah, exactly. So, Danielle, I just finished reading your book last night. It is incredible. For those who don't know, Danielle is the founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence and the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And nobody knows more about the inner workings of the Federal Reserve than Danielle. So, Danielle, I want to jump right in today. Uh, I got a quote from you here. The grave error in logic being committed by growing hordes of Powell detractors is presuming to think policy can ever be normalized if the Fed put is not slain once and for all, accepting loss. Danielle, what did you mean by that sentence? It means that there are uh, there are armies of people out there who have deluded themselves into thinking that as long as the Fed perpetually pivots, and this is where they actually cannot answer the question, as long as the Fed perpetually pivots, that everything will be okay. And my response to them is, but every time the Fed does pivot and uh, it, it takes a greater effort, if you will, uh, there has to be a higher level of money printing and getting, it's, it's the law of diminishing returns. You get less and less every time the Fed has to do this. And so, in, you're, you're quoting my opus, too small to not fail. And so I take the logic all the way to the end of the pivoteers, I call them pivoteers, of the pivoteers argument. And that is, if the US economy can only subsist, and I don't say exist, I don't say perform, I say mm-hmm. subsist at the zero bound with the Fed monetizing every penny that the treasury issues, then the last chapter of Fed Up is irrelevant. There is no need to reform the Fed. You can just end the Fed. And don't get me wrong, the people who want to end the Fed think that there would be some kind of utopia that followed. No, it would look a lot more like um, modern monetary theory on steroids, universal basic income, Um, the treasury. Again, this is this is my this is my Avengers Endgame, that the Treasury could just um, absorb the functions of the New York Markets Desk. No, not even the New York Markets Desk, because that actually that 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 entails analysis. You don't need to analyze anything. You don't need to study the economy. You don't need any PhDs. You just need a desk to buy Treasuries, and then for that desk to uh, to in 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 buying the Treasuries allow the Treasury then to just provide money to U.S. families, we have hyperinflation. And as a country, we just disappear off the planet. 
Keith, I want to go to you. This sounds gravely familiar as well. I, I know you and Keith have both actually kind of publicly stated that the structure of the economy is such that the Fed can never meaningfully keep rates high for a substantial period of time. Keith, what are some of those arguments as to why not? Is it the productivity of the debt? Is it the solvency of the banks? Is it zombie companies, another taper tantrum? What are some of those reasons why, as Danielle mentioned, we really can't uh, live or even subsist in anything other than low rate environments? Oh, I didn't, oh no, wait, there, there, is, there is an option. It's just, you know, in the end, you know, the main character dies. So anyways. <laughs> Kind of reminds me of uh, the Mythbusters where they say failure is always an option. Um, but in certain circumstances, you may not prefer that option. Um, the thing that occurs to me in, uh, in what you were saying about diminishing returns is um, almost no economists talk about marginal productivity of debt, which is how much additional GDP juice do you add for every dollar of debt you add? And, this is the Lacey Hunt Bible. If you Google marginal productivity of debt, or at least the last time I did a couple of months ago, my articles and my name is all over the first page on that. Now, you know, I have some, you know, I'm, I'm a known person. I'm not zero in the world of economics, but I don't think I'm that prominent that I should dominate the first page of a term that has existed in economics for 100 years or something. I'm not that prominent. And nobody's writing about it. And you get, you know, I, I call it the, the Stephen Moore kind of syndrome where he says, oh, well, we just need to grow our way out of this, you know, slightly better, you know, fiscal policy and tax policy and whatever, and, you know, GDP will go up. And it's like, you take a look at that graph of marginal productivity of debt. It's been falling since at least 1950. It's secular. It's been under Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, Democratic control of the, of the Congress, Republican control of the Congress, the vestiges of the gold standard that existed from 1950 to 1971. And I think it's been falling longer than that. That's just the oldest data set that I've been able to get my hands on uh, to, to look at it. And you know, everything about the system is diminishing. You have to do more and more borrowing to get less and less GDP. Uh, when the interest rate's falling, obviously asset prices are rising. Uh, rising asset prices allow greater collateral values, greater borrowing. And then if things go down, you know, interest rates go up and asset prices go down, then suddenly everybody's insolvent. So there's the there's the uh, raison d'etre, if you will, of the of the Fed put, and uh, the Fed doesn't have my, my view is the Fed doesn't have any good policy choices. They're all bad, mm -hmm. uh, and it's basically you know continue the decay or blow us up all at once, and they usually tend to prefer not to blow us up all at once. So um, well, you could argue that they're that Jay Powell has succeeded in blowing us up slowly because fiscal stimulus has, has, has softened the blow of every company that's gone out of business because we have, we, we have seen the beginning of a bankruptcy cycle, a real bankruptcy cycle, and yet the market is still hanging in there mainly due to fiscal stimulus that is very quietly going on in the background. Right, and wait till the bankruptcies continue to cascade and accelerate, and then we'll see when the chips are down which lever he, uh, he pulls. We, we will see. I mean, um, again, I am, I am the, the lone cheerleader. That's what I feel like. I am the lone cheerleader. And it's, I'm not, people get confused. And, um, 
and people really get offended when you use the word confused, but people do get confused and they think that I'm cheerleading for Powell as a person. Now, he seems to be a very nice person. Don't get me wrong, but I'm cheerleading because he's trying to do the impossible, which you've just described. And if he can succeed, then, you know, as I said in an extreme example, you know, maybe my grandchildren one day don't say, hey, my grandparents are from the United States as Australians. So um, if he can succeed, if he can't succeed, then I'm not sure what the fate of this country is. It's, uh, there's a lot of bleak scenarios. I've written about so, Danielle, I want to talk a little bit about that because I heard you mention that Jerome is actually trying to thread the needle here, right? So going back down to near zero, that's not really a great option. And, you know, having these bank defaults, these runs destroying the economy, that's obviously not a great option either. But maybe there's a small, small thread where if Jerome keeps rates high enough, we can kill off some of these zombie companies, some of these companies that really shouldn't have existed in anything other than the zero rate environment. But on the other hand, we can keep some of these stronger companies alive. So can we talk about that for a second? How, how might this play out in a dream scenario for Jerome Powell? So in this dream scenario, uh, before this bankruptcy cycle started, and if you're talking about um, you know, kind of a, a textbook bankruptcy cycle, uh, in the three months through February 28th, 2023, you had 51 companies with $50 million or more in liabilities file for chapter 11. That's kind of your textbook, goes back to 2009, last time we saw this. Uh, individual bankruptcies are rising, small business bankruptcies are rising. They've been rising year over year for two months now, January and February. So we're in a bankruptcy cycle and yet things really haven't fallen apart. But before this bankruptcy cycle started, we had approximately 20% of all US firms that were zombies. So if you're talking about my idea of utopia, which has nothing to do with universal basic income, it's a different kind of utopia. You come out at the other end with say 75, knowing I'm not naive enough to say there's not going to be casualties along the way, innocent casualties. But let's say we come out at the other end of whatever this possibly is, if he can maintain high interest rates, which my mentor, Dr. Lacey Hunt says is impossible. But if he can maintain them, doesn't have to raise rates anymore, by the way. The level is irrelevant at this point. If he can just continue to roll the balance sheet off in the background, depleting liquidity from the system, which is what is fueling the bankruptcy cycle, and we come out at the other end with, say, 75% of the companies in America, 80% of which were not zombies. They were good, solvent companies going in. But let's say we come out with 75% of them, and then we've got 25% capacity for new entrants to come in and get well-priced capital. We never go back to the zero bound. He's gotten the Fed funds rate all the way up to five. Let's say we take it down 300 basis points and he says, you know what, the new floor is 2%. Zero, the zero bound introduces too many distortions and it doesn't accomplish anything on a macroeconomic level. It just feeds the non-banking sector. Maybe we get rid of securitization along the way. That's not a really good way to price credit. Maybe credit goes back to the banking system um, and, and we look back and say to the private equity kingpins who run monetary policy today, I hope you're happy in the Hamptons. I know you only collected billions of dollars during that lovely 40 year era of Fed easing, but that, that party's over. And now we're just gonna have 
the conventional banking system, nothing in the shadows, the light of day acts as a cleansant. And here we go. That's I love that. I love that dream, Danielle. I'm, I'm going to go to bed tonight dreaming of Jerome Powell like I always do. Um, and I actually had a fun question here, which was for both of you, um, which do you think is, is going to be more likely? That the Fed hikes higher than during Volcker or the Fed funds rate never falls below 4% ever again? Keith, I'm going to start with you this time. My view is that, um, and I don't uh, Danielle, if you've seen me talk about this, is that um, it's like we've entered the gravitational field of a black hole, and that whether or not they would like the interest rates to be higher, there's so many forces. The force driving interest rate lower is so powerful that um, they can't uh, they can't overcome it. And when I was formulating uh, uh, my theory of interest and prices, I was at a Cato Institute Monetary Policy Conference. This would have been in 2014, probably. So before they started that abortive attempt to hike rates. And um, there was a number of, uh, you know, senior Fed officials. I remember Charles Plasser was there and um, one or two others. And, and then also there was John Taylor there of the Taylor Rule um, and a few other uh, economists uh, of that sort. First thing that occurred to me, they all have the same playbook, which was at that time largely the Taylor Rule. And they all thought that Bernanke should have been raising rates. And, and one by one, they went up to talk and they were all puzzled. I don't know why Chairman Bernanke is not raising rates. And that was just when I was kind of really formulating this thought of a black hole. And I was like, now I know why, because he, he knows he can't. And so um, my prediction would be whatever Powell may intend that um, you, you know the rate is gonna, is gonna fall back down. And part of it is what demand is there for credit at these interest rates? You know, demand for credit dries up. So that would be my view, but um, I'm, I'm curious what uh, Danielle thinks about that. So I don't, um, I don't think that we ever have a, a Fed funds floor of 4%. What I did find to be intriguing and what I do continue to find to be intriguing is the hard line that Powell has managed to hold with his committee, which is a little bit easier with Lael Brainerd out the door. Um, but when you saw the latest dot plot come out of, of the March meeting, the terminal rate at the end of 2024 had risen from 4.1%, the last time they put the dot plot together, to 4.3%. And I said to myself, well, isn't that interesting? Because the implication is that he has managed to sell his theory, my theory, um, to the committee that he can maintain rates higher for longer and potentially in 2024 north of 4%. Now, do I think that I am, again, in the tiniest majority in the world? Yes. I mean, I'm like in a whole different kind of 1%. <laughs> There's like the 99% who are like, <laughs> the world will end. We will go to the zero bound and they will have to start QE again. And I, I empathize with that gigantic majority knowing that uh, for one specific reason, when Janet Yellen has to go refill the treasury general account and sell seven, $800 billion worth of bills, if you thought that you heard a great big sucking sound after a trillion dollars or so of, of QT, wait until she sells all those, all those bills at once. 
the woman will be petrified. Her, I mean, her hair is already white. I don't know how else she'll be able to reflect how petrified she is. But that that magnitude, because we have to remember, right? Steve Mnuchin sold 1.1 trillion. Now there was stimulus going on at the time, but when they resolved the debt ceiling, when Mnuchin was treasury secretary under Trump, he had to go into the market and sell $1.1 trillion worth of reserves. Now add the backdrop of a banking crisis, which he didn't have at the time and massive reserve depletion, it could have never happened. And yet, so for me, that's the real systemic aha moment. We might be able to plot along here until then. And, you know, but, but that moment will test the word systemic. And no banker, no central banker, don't get me wrong, I actually still think that Powell could say, two's the new zero. So overnight, go from four to two. If there was something crazy, systemic, or five to two, but say two's the new zero, get used to it. And let the chips fall where they may, again, to Keith's point, there is no good choice. It doesn't exist on planet Earth. Accepting losses, the first quote you threw out there, accepting the loss that comes from that delta between 2% and the zero bound, maybe that's the loss we have to accept to get back to the rational world of the Federal Reserve making independent monetary policy instead of private equity denizens making monetary policy for the Fed and for every American, because that's who they're making policy for. And that's who's making monetary policy. It is the people who run private equity. It's with good reason that there is a Bloomberg headline that came out a few weeks ago that said Stephen Schwartzman collected $1.23 billion in income last year at Blackstone. Nobody gets paid that. Jamie Dimon doesn't get paid that. The best bank CEO, Goldman Sachs, that nobody gets paid in the billions except for the people running monetary policy. They do because Danielle, the rule book. I, I want to speak about FedSpeak for a second. You have a lot of great lines in your book about FedSpeak and how carefully they said, oh, it's slightly, or should we say moderately or marginally, right? These all have different connotations to them. And you mentioned the dot plot. So I, I kind of want to hear from an insider, what is your opinion on using this kind of forward guidance, if you'd want to call it by central banks, the dot plot, um, and, and Powell's actually recent public clarity on his plans. He said, listen, guys, this is what I'm going to try to do. Now, that doesn't mean he can necessarily do it, but he's definitely been clear, as clear as I've ever heard someone say, this is the plan going forward. Do you agree with that strategy, and do you think that it's worked so far? Well, I think it's worked so far. People are like, but the market's pricing and rate cuts at the end of the year. And I'm like, rewind, you you circus of morons, all of you. Just That's not very nice. I take that back. But rewind <laughs> six months ago when the market was saying he's going to have to pivot. And every single time for one, now we've crossed the one-year anniversary. For more than a year now, he has slowly but surely used Fed speak in between blackout periods to methodically reset market market pricing. He's reset it every single time. And the dot plots this time were intriguing the end of 2024. What was more intriguing was to see an actual new word in the statement, not a nuance, a word, firming. I went, oh my God, that must've taken them first full day of the Tuesday, Wednesday meeting. They must've spent at least eight hours putting a real new verb into the statement. 
I couldn't imagine how long it would have taken them. It must have been five hours. But that one word tells you because he was, you know, they were, they were saying, you know, it might be the time to stop hiking rates, but we still see firming. And that's his way of saying, I'm running the balance sheet down. Bill Dudley, I don't care if it used to be your baby and now you're my biggest public detractor. I'm going to keep running that balance sheet down. And it is a form of tightening, but we don't want to use that word. So they got out world's biggest thesaurus and they were like, what else can we use besides tightening? And they come up with firming and then they debate it. And then they get, they call in an etymologist from somewhere in the beltway and they get bringing a consultant and okay, if we add the word firming, what will that do? And I'm not, I am exaggerating, but just a little. When you read the transcripts and you see how long they deliberate over one word, a word that could be a synonym for tightening put into the statement, wow, it's incredible. It refers to QT. And if you add that to the dot plot, 4.3% from 4.1%, that means that he intends to keep QT going at least into, as the reporter dared ask him, does this mean that you're not considering rate cuts in 2023? His answer, no. That means that he intends to keep tightening throughout the end of the year. Keith, I'm gonna give you a second there to giggle and laugh, but Danielle, I do agree that it seems like there is this kind of clarity and listen, these guys aren't fools, they're smart people, right? They're PhD economists, some of them, and they're picking the words carefully to try to signal to markets, this is our plan. Now in the end, the 99% of us might be right. We might have to turn around, but that doesn't mean that what you're seeing as that kind of 1% of the 1% is wrong. This is what Jerome is trying to signal to us. And so far, Danielle, you've been 100% right. Keith, let's jump to you for a second. You know, what, what do I even say? You know, I think it's one thing to say the monetary system works the way that it works. And, you know, this is what's going to happen. I was thinking earlier that 20% of the firms were zombies at 0% interest. When you raise the bar, raise the, the margin so high, how many are zombies at 4% Fed funds rate, a much greater percentage. Um, I can point to that and say, you know, more bankruptcies are coming and those bankruptcies will then cascade and cause other bankruptcies. But the decision to set rates higher or lower is a political decision made by a politician, you, you know, to the extent that Powell is acting as policy planner, he's acting as a politician. He may have an economist and an economist credentials, but he's acting as a politician. And um, I don't feel I have any insight as to predicting what politicians will do. And the politics can get very strange on these things. Um, Danielle, I don't know if you noticed um, on the Silicon Valley Bank, um, I'm not sure what the right word would be, but at first they said all depositors over 250,000 we're going to give you a little check and then we'll see how the liquidation proceeds. And then by Sunday, you know, two days later, they said, okay, we're going to make everybody whole. Now, politics of that played out in a very strange, or I, they haven't really played out. I mean, that was, that stood for Silicon Valley Bank. But you had the extreme right and the extreme left both hated it. And I, I guess most of the people, not extreme left and extreme right, you know, thought it was fine. The extreme right hated it because they said this is a bailout for the woke left Silicon Valley, uh, you know, companies and VCs that are destroying America and destroying the world. And the extreme left hated it because they said this is a bailout for rich white privileged people. And so 
you know, when, when politics can line up in that way, um, you know, how do you predict what the outcome is going to be on the next one? And I would say the same thing applies to interest rate policy. You know, what are going to be the pressures that, uh, you know, who's going to be lobbying for Powell to, to continue rates to firm and who's going to be lobbying for lower rates? And sometimes the sides switch abruptly, you know, without without any predictability beforehand. So I, I could not begin to guess, you know, how that's going to play. I guess it also reminds me of uh, the tax, so-called Tax Cut Act of, of uh, 2017, when um, the Republicans are nominally the party of let's cut taxes. They said, oh, we have state and local tax um, deductibility. Let's eliminate that, which is obviously a tax hike. But they said it's a greater tax hike on rich people in blue states than it is on rich people in red states, which tend to have lower tax rates. So all of a sudden, you know, the nominal sides kind of switched. And then you have the, the party of let's cut taxes suddenly advocating what's actually a tax increase and, and actually touching a, a long established precedent that I don't think had been in play. Um, it wasn't on my bingo card for 2017. So you know, how do these things play out? It can be very unpredictable. Um, or at least I, I don't have any insight into predicting them. Well, you know, what, what, what's interesting, Keith, it, when you're talking about the politics of this is that, you know, Chair Powell's uh, schedule is a matter of public record. So the, the, the public can see all of the meetings that he attends and with whom. And uh, to me, what was interesting was how, how very afraid Janet Yellen was of, rightly so, of a run that became a very contagious run, one bank after another falls, one domino after another. And that was, I mean, I understand both the extreme right and the extreme left and their reaction to Silicon Valley Bank because it was specifically Silicon Valley Bank. And you had Harry right. and Megan and their deposits there. And it was this beast. I, I, it, that is, to me, superficially understandable. Looking beneath the surface, you saw the dominoes lined up one banker after another, after another, after another, and contagion. And so you have a duty to get in front of that. And, but what was, what's, what's been intriguing to me though, to go back to your point about Powell, is that Powell is an extremely active Fed chair. If you look at his predecessors and the number of meetings that they had with individual, individuals in Congress, it doesn't compare. He's, in, in that sense, he's very, political and that his ears are open as a lawyer's would be, he's a lawyer, to all sides, he's listening. And yet every once in a while you get blasting out of a bazooka, Janet Yellen's attempt at being political, even though she refuses to go up to the hill and visit with anybody. So there are ironies in what I just said. There are nuances in what I just said, because Powell is desperately trying to not be politicized. And that is, that defines, defines killing the Fed put. It is, Kristen Sinema left the Democratic Party shortly after she had killed, you know, a, a bill that was going to kill carried interest, which would put a, a dagger through the heart of private equity profitability. So, and she left the Democratic Party. You're like, wait, what, huh, wait. It's just like what you just said. I realize I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but the, Republicans, the Republicans, you know. I was going to say, I can, add, I can add something to Kirsten Sinema as, as an Arizonan here, which is so she got elected in the wake of the um, reaction to Trump. 
And I, I don't, and everyone said, oh, the state of Arizona is turning purple and they turn blue. And I didn't read it that way. I read it as a reaction against Trump, not a reaction in favor of the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so she knew that in order to be electable in Arizona, you cannot go along with the rank and file party line of the Democrats. You're not going to be electable in her district. So, um, you know, she, uh, she had to do that to remain electable. And then I guess the Democratic Party gave her an ultimatum. I don't know how that played out. But, um, you know, in a certain sense, it doesn't surprise me that being that she has to get elected in Arizona and therefore had to take certain positions. Um, but, but my point is that she has ha, private equity has been her biggest benefactor. Biggest, I mean, they've they've funded her campaigns for generations. They've always known that they've got a senator in their pocket when it comes to carried interest, which is, you know, that's that's the holy grail of private equity is getting benefit, you know, beneficial tax treatment. Um, right. But all I'm saying is you would think that Powell would be more political than he is because he's 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 visited more with people in Congress. And yet he is less political than you would think just by looking at his, I'm gonna date myself here, just by looking at his day timer. <laughs> so Danielle, I wanna to jump to something that is obviously near and dear to our hearts which is gold. So in one of your in your one of your latest interviews you said who cares about the savers? Nobody. When we go down to these zero interest rates, this kills savers and no one is screaming from the rooftops saying where are savers. So I'm going to do a, a little self-serving pitch which is we care about gold and we care about savers, which is why monetary metals obviously offers interest on gold paid in gold to these savers. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about gold because Keith and I mentioned this a lot on the podcast. And one thing that we say is, you know, central bankers don't really think a lot about gold. And uh, I've got a tweet response from you here, which is great. So Joseph Wang, who's the Fed guy, said, I like gold. I think of it as a hedge against government mismanagement, such as forever trillion dollar deficits. But in my experience, the Fed doesn't care about gold. Desk reports never mention gold, and I've never heard of anyone in the Fed wanting market intel on it. Now, Danielle, you responded saying, Ditto. I'm mystified that there is so much focus on the Fed being focused on gold. In nine years, the precious metal wasn't even a topic of discussion as it pertained to jewelry, much less monetary policy. Danielle, please eviscerate gold from anyone who thinks that the Fed is thinking about the shiny metal. Oh, no, it's not even a subject of discussion. Now, my boss used to own a lot of gold, but that was during quantitative easing 1.0 as opposed to what followed the pandemic. But no, it's it's simply, it doesn't factor into their models, their thinking. It, it's just, it's not, there, there's nothing that is in this Keynesian school of thought that brings precious metals into the discussion to begin with. So if it's not in a model, it's not discussed. It, it just is what it is. Heck, the, the, the Fed doesn't even really talk about the dollar, even though monetary policy clearly affects the dollar and the in the value of the dollar, but that is technically in the Treasury's purview. And and if the, if there's anything to be said for bureaucrats at the Fed is that they do know how to follow rules. I really did not. Um, so that was another red X against me when I was on the inside, among others. But it doesn't matter. Um, no, gold is not something that that is pondered, contemplated, etc. And more to the point. Because it's not considered, 
I think in a, in a philosophical way, it's probably one of the reasons that it is as bulletproof as it is as a diversification vehicle, even vis-a-vis -vis treasuries in times of gigantic disruption in the market. Absolutely. And you said, um, and I'm going to quote you again here, that gold does well in times of inflation and deflation. Boy, Maybe I'll give you a second there. Talk <laughs> about Boy, did I get taken out to the woodshed for that. And I, 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 I actually had the, the graph create it. So the graph now exists so that you can see, yes, gold had a hiccup in 2008, but then it came roaring back even while the CPI continued to fall. And then the CPI bounced off the bottom and came back. I get that. I can read a graph. But as the CPA was falling, as Lehman was imploding, it was a safe haven. It wasn't a safe haven in the sense of GIA Treasury is a safe haven. It was just a safe haven, period. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what gold's traditional store of value is in times of inflation, blah, 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 blah. Hell no. It was just a safe place to be. Keith, I want to go to you now. So Danielle says the Fed has never talked about gold. They never think about it. But in times of crisis, inflation, deflation, banking crisis, 2008, people run to gold, not because of some theory or some tradition, because people want gold. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I agree. I was, I was going to add something to um, what Daniel was saying about like, they don't talk about it. It's not in the model. Therefore, you know, it almost doesn't exist. Um, Daniel, I've written an awful lot to debunk this persistent um, conspiracy theory that the Fed is in cahoots with some dark cabal of banks to manipulate the price of gold. And um, a lot of people get really into that. So if you write against it, you know, you become a lightning rod, which I certainly have been. And um, we uh, finally assembled the data to be able to look at how the futures contracts behave as they approach maturity. And so I wrote a very long piece with backed by you know data that I don't think anybody else in the world has the data that we have now. Uh, and it was kind of an open letter to Ted Butler, who was you know conspirator uh, uh, central for a while. And um, anyways, that was circulated everywhere. It became very controversial. And one of these conspiracy sites actually had a uh, an article where I became a one-name person. It said, what Wiener does not want to know. And it was in response to something I had said that, you know, I've met a lot of central bankers. I haven't met anybody at uh, at the level of Powell, but I've met people one and two levels down and had conversations. They don't think about gold. That was my observation as an outsider. If you ask them about gold, there's this pause and they kind of squint slightly. And I kind of picture it like, I've never done this, but if you went up to like, the senior engineer at, at Tesla and asked him about when you're going to put carburetors in the next Tesla model, <laughs> you'd probably get that same pause of like, wait, what? That's a great analogy. That that was obsoleted 50 years ago, wasn't it? You know, I read about that in my grandfather's old textbooks <laughs> that I inherited when he passed away 10 years ago, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, why, why would they care about manipulating the price? Well, according to the conspiracy theorists, when the price of gold hits whatever magic number that it's supposed to be, which always keeps going up uh, in their minds, um, then you know gold is going to be remonetized and you know will spontaneously begin to circulate and the dollar will you know lose its reserve status and whatever. And um, as a monetary theory, that doesn't work. But just from a you know an actual you know they're, they're making a statement of fact that the Fed is plotting constantly and conspiring to manipulate the price of gold, and it's like. 
uh, it's very interesting that both you and Joseph Wang said as insiders, we never heard it come up. There was never any request by you know senior Fed officials for research. Like a briefing on gold, please. The, like yeah. those words were never uttered ever. Right. And so you know, so there it is. So I, I think if this if this episode of our podcast has any enduring value, that even ten years from now people are going to look back on it, whatever is going to happen with interest rates will have played out. It's going to be old news. But this idea that you know the Fed just isn't thinking about gold is is uh, uh, I, I think a really important gem for people to hear. No, and, and these are the same. I mean, I, I think the one thing that. Uh, that, that people who are thoughtful took away from my book, Fed Up, was that rather than conspiratorial and Machiavellian, they were just really boring. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways for people who are paying attention to the book. It's that they, they kind of, they, they get their, their PhD and they spend the next 40 years of their career fleshing out their dissertation until the leather patches on their elbows have been run through and then they retire with a great big fat pension. And at lunchtime in the executive dining room, they spend a lot of time talking about their dissertations for 40 years. Again, I exaggerate, but not that much. Yeah, when I, when I finally finished the book, I went, they're not, they're not evil geniuses. Um, they might be you know, PhD standard geniuses, but they're not evil geniuses. They're not really trying to like get one over on the gold community or trying to keep the dollar. They're not really doing this. Um, it, it's just the way that the system is, is built and the way that the kind of politics inside the Fed that you described so well have just kind of catered to this PhD standard, which you know doesn't really interact well with what we call reality in the real world. No, but you know, so I, I'm going to push back. You know, if you have if you have not read Too Small to Not Fail, go to demartinobooth.substack.com immediately, because there was a moment when Bernanke crossed the line and brought together too small to form a quorum group of Fed insiders to create um, his blueprint that you had to go to the zero bound, that precondition. It was not made among all leaders, including Charlie Plosser and Richard Fisher at the time. They were not invited into the room at Jackson Hole in 2007. They were not invited. But that was where the precondition of the zero bound, based on the body of academic models and knowledge that they had to look to, again, a small group of people, including Janet Yellen. I mean, there were some really choice people in that room that day. But that precondition is what set us on this path of inextricability, of the inability to escape the zero bound. That was, that was made, if you want a conspiracy theorist, if you want to keep, you know, stay awake at night and wonder why on earth the man used the title, The Courage to Act, I mean, the hubris of it all, and then getting, <laughs> getting a Nobel Prize for, for, for time with the global economy and a Gordian's knot, that's that's something that should get under your skin and upset you and keep you up at night because that decision should have never been made in a small room by a few people. You know, I, I think um, in terms of getting upset and staying up at night, there's so many things that go on. Um, I, I remember, uh, I guess it was last week, I commented on one of your threads on Twitter about in 2009, it felt like we had government by leak. It was always like, you know, uh, a Fed official close to uh, uh, 
you know, the conversation said, but asked to remain anonymous because he's not authorized to speak or whatever. And the other thing that um, we seem to have dispensed with at that time, and now we're seeing it again, Credit Suisse being an example, we throw out the rule of law, right? and, and Silicon Valley Bank as well. Right, so Credit Suisse, what did they do? They said, well, the stockholders are gonna get something and the bondholders get destroyed. There goes, what, 600 years, a thousand years of law and precedent out the window. Um, yep. How how is anybody supposed to plan investing? Swiss of all people, I mean the Swiss of all people. I mean, you would think that they would be the most agnostic, neutral, level-headed, and they're just like, "Well, we're going to change the law." So it's right on on a Sunday. On a Sunday, and and but again, there is because, and I don't mean to be you know so hard on Bernanke, but maybe I do. But because one person set us on this path getting out of it is just it's 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 created every direction you could possibly step you're going to step on a landmine it's absolutely just, it, it feels like there's almost a path dependency from that moment on there's this path dependency of listen if we turn back now it's even worse if we go forward it's bad if we take a left it's landmines on the right is crocodiles all because of this kind of, if you want to call it one conspiratorial meeting or this whole setup in general, we have kind of run into the, the problems that have been built either by the system, by its predecessors, or by the people at the very helm. Now, now, trust me when I say Random House's lawyers made sure that I fact-checked it. And I, so the Bernanke doctrine is not a figment of my imagination. I don't even want to begin to say that. It's just been very hush-hush over the years for obvious legal reasons. So, um, but but it did happen. And I think people, again, they, they really need to read because it's short. I, I finally managed to put, people are like, why did you open up something that was for your institutional clients to the general public? And I'm like, because I, I managed to put fed up into, you know, 5,000 words. And, and, and I, because of the moment of this banking crisis and because of what, you know, the body of work that was done when I was there about too big to fail and how Dodd-Frank actually institutionalized too big to fail and made it worse than what it was because regulations are always looking through the back, through the rear view mirror. Absolutely. If I can just add to that, in 2009, a lot of people, including a lot of very sensible people like Steve Forbes, whom I, I, I count as a friend, were saying that, um, Mark to market, if not a cause of the crisis in 2008 was exacerbating it. Let's eliminate mark to market accounting. And I remember, you know, tr trying to say something to him, but I mean, I just wasn't in that position. But um, fast forward to Silicon Valley Bank did not hedge their interest rate risk, the duration risk. And then in, in the discussion thread on Twitter, it comes up if something is put in the bucket, hold to maturity, you can't. Hedge risk, because the hedge would just be treated as a separate proprietary derivatives position that does not offset this hold to maturity thing. So unintended consequences. You think, okay, two thousand eight is exacerbating mark to market. I don't. I mean, I can see the mechanics, but I don't agree that that's the root cause. Um, and uh, you know, they say, okay, well, let's change this, and then you have this perversity that the bank is essentially overstating how well capitalized it is while the value of its assets is eroding because they put in a magic bucket labeled, we're never gonna have to sell it. And so I, I got into an exchange, I think it was with Brent Johnson, you know, talking about, um, 
you know, you can say that your uh, Bitcoin is is hold to maturity. You can say that your um, bonds are hold to maturity, but you don't have that power because you don't know the future. And if your depositors are suddenly withdrawing their deposits, all these things that you said I never intend to sell, you find those have to get sold in order to raise the cash to pay the depositors out. And then the you know, bank suddenly discovers that it's it's got inadequate capital because the regulation not only allowed, but encouraged them to overstate the value of uh, of the capital on the balance sheet. And that was, I mean, that that's one way of characterizing what was a regulation set under the assumption that the Fed could never get very far off of the zero bound. Dangerous, absolutely dangerous. Well, Danielle, as we come near the end here, I want to ask you some questions. So at the very end of the podcast, I always ask the guests, what is a question that you would like me to ask all future guests? So I'm going to ask you some of those questions now. So the first one is actually from Brent Johnson, who we just mentioned, which is obviously we've discussed the Fed, this, this entire podcast, the kind of danger and the path dependency that they put us on. What about all other foreign central banks, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of China? Um, are they dealing with these same problems and how are they going to get out of the path dependency that we've just been discussing for the United States? So again, um, the, the Federal Reserve Bank of America is the leader of all central banks of the world. And if you think that our banks are going to have a hard time, think of Japanese banks because the Japanese sovereign market is inside of their banking system. So imagine the impossibility of being in the position of having to try to get rates anywhere near, you can't even use the word normal. You just can't, you can't. Right now we're kind of at normal. Right now 5% is kind of sort of-ish, normal-ish kind of. But you would, the whole country would vanish. It would be like that 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 movie, The Pink Panther, one of the sequels, when the mad scientist is at the organ and and his, eventually the castle just disappears into you know some really bad special effects from back in the eighties or seventies, whenever it was. But 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 that would that would be what you would think of as the Japanese economy just just imploding on itself. So there is something very real to be said about. If, if going to the zero bound was bad, then for God's sake, what, what are the implications of negative interest rates and trying to get out of that and, and, and the implications for the sanctity of the banking system in countries that depend more on banks than the United States does, that don't have as robust or mature capital markets? Keith, I wanted to send that Absolutely. same question your way. I'm, I actually trained Brent at, at DLJ. <laughs> yeah, Brent. Training, we, training program behind me. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, something I've said many times: we're, you know, on a line that's essentially been falling for 40 years. Where do you, where do you point to and say it's normal? I mean, it's it's a falling trend. Um, yes, um, but again, um, I'm I'm gonna, you know, I am I am I'm like the woman walks around with a black cloud over her head. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Maybe, maybe choose the new zero. Maybe we can draw that line. I can hope. Yeah. In Japan, um, I don't know what percentage of the bond market that the Bank of Japan owns, 
but it's it's stupefying. I mean, oh, I, if they could ever undo that. I think uh, it's 40-ish. 40% of the entire bond market. It's and they also own a big chunk of the uh, public equities too. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, if we have a, a mountain to dig ourselves out from underneath of, you know, they have an entire, I don't know, planet, solar system to dig out from underneath of in order to try to get to normal. Um, and during which time would be, you know, that then they have a huge demographic problem that we don't have on top of it. Um, you know, a lot of people are looking for the housing crash here in the U.S. as the interest rates go up. And one of the things that uh, mitigate that are that most mortgages here are fixed rate, especially post-2008. Um, but in the rest of the world, it's, it's the exact opposite. I, don't, I mean, I don't think, some countries, I don't think there is such a thing as a fixed rate mortgage. I think they're all variable. Now, a lot of um, the Nordic countries, when you talk about Australia, New Zealand, I mean, these are... Ugh. I mean, we, we could spend hours talking about that. So you know, about the if the mortgages are all variable rate, or the vast majority of them are, and you try to raise interest rates, it's not just the banks that you're targeting and the zombie corporations, it's every homeowner. Um, I mean, the problem is go... All, you know, I'm like, it was only the United States and to a certain extent, England, that experienced a balance sheet recession in 08, 09 a balance sheet recession that really hurt households. But the rest of the world kind of skated right on by. Look at Canada, it, 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 meaning it's still to come. Yeah, that's right. And you look in Australia, like property prices, you know, we had this huge, I mean, I live here in Arizona, it's like the, one of the epicenters of the housing crash in 2008, 2009. And you look at the housing prices in Australia and they barely paused. They certainly didn't crash. I think the line flattens a little bit before it goes continues, you know, rising. When the when the when the reckoning comes, right? So I, I just think it, it's so intractable uh how you get out of this. And in the rest of the world, much more intractable than here. Um our our economy is in a lot of ways the least bad. Not that it's good to your point earlier about um diminishing returns and all that, but in a lot of other places, significantly, you know, worse. No, so Danielle, Danielle, I want to get to one more question from a past guest, which is from Jeff Snyder. Jeff kind of wants to know about the euro dollar system as well as the shadow banking system. Um, what are some of your thoughts on that and how it pertains to the real economy and the above ground economy? So the thing about the euro dollar economy is that it's, it, it, well, it's funny that he asked the question in, in the same question as a shadow banking uh, system, because now you're talking about things that are completely out of the control and or purview of my former employer, the Fed. And, and, and that is that is where the idea of, of systemic really gains steam. Um, you know, I always go back to the example of German Landis banks when the subprime crisis uh, first broke and and the money market fund broke the book and Lehman fell and and you're like wait a minute what do you mean you're blowing up German Landis banks because they had high concentrations of U.S. subprime mortgages but you didn't know that and you wouldn't have known it it's the things you don't know and what we don't know going in and I constantly quote this so that everybody can pack it in their minds is 220 trillion dollars 12 30, 120 
$220 trillion, the non-banking financial system, $180 trillion, the conventional banking system. One of them's not regulated. One of them we don't know what's going on inside of, global regulatory speaking. One of them we do. So um, we, the, the unknown unknown is gigantic compared to the known known. And the known known, if you bring, as we just did, Japan into the discussion is enormous. Right. So, no, these are, um, these are subjects that, that this is what keeps me up at night. People are sitting here fighting about, you know, deflationary discount window lending. And I'm like, okay, uh, there are other things to worry about here, kids. Um, <laughs> A, it's not QE, but B, have you considered the non-banking sector? Because that will keep you up at night. And, and the idea of getting rid of mark to market and the effect that that's had. And, but, but it doesn't matter. They don't have laws, rules, strictures in that shadowy area of the world. It's been marked to target because they run monetary policy and have always been able to force the pivot so that they've never had the, the teacher's pension of the city of Chicago have to mark to market which would blow up the city of Chicago. So it's these these are these are the bigger subjects that really deserve the attention of people who are inclined to worry, not whether or not oh bitcoin's trapped, it's up. Okay, it's trapped, it's up and therefore it's QE and I'm like yeah. All right, Danielle, I want to get in school. <laughs> so sorry. I want to give you an opportunity now to ask a question that I'll ask all future guests. Um, but first, where can people find Quill Intelligence? They want to read more about Danielle, and obviously they have to buy the book. I'm telling you right now, if you don't buy the book, this is QE. If you don't buy the book, that's QE. So if you don't want QE, you have to buy the book. Uh, Danielle, where can people find more of your work? So come to demartinobooth.substack.com. I'm new to the platform, which is why I don't really have the smoothness of my spiel down, but that's also where you can find in full form for free, too small to not fail, my opus. So come and then jump on trial, do whatever you want, try out the, I mean, it's $59 a month to get the daily feather seven days a week. It's stupid cheap, which, you know, I shouldn't say out loud because I kind of run the company anyways, but just give it a whirl because as unhinged as I am in the spoken word, my research is amazing. Ask every single guest until it's resolved. If the debt ceiling is not Kabuki theater this time, how should it play into what your narrative is going forward? Danielle, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Gold Exchange Podcast. You've been a wealth of knowledge. We can't wait to have you back, and we'll be seeing you on Substack. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified reliable financing, denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.